You know, we didn't try to slight anyone by going 18 and over, but our first time, we're going to try it, and uh, may not be the last time. Who knows? So, by the way, the rest of you, if you're here and you can put $100 in your wallet on your own investment, do that, okay? Put some money aside in your wallet that says, this is, I'm a missionary. Appoint yourself as a missionary today because God already called you. And you don't need money. Every single one of us needs to walk around like we've got $100 in our pocket looking for God to bring people across our path because every single one of us should live with that call to missions just like these three. And so Hebrews chapter nine is where we are. If you've got your Bibles and you wanna turn there, we're continuing through the book of Hebrews in our study uh, of this book. <clears throat> this is actually the 15th part of this series. And so I, I know you have to go back uh, way far past Christmas in order to uh, find out or get the rest of them. And uh, next week with Teen Challenge and then through the month of March, we're gonna break again and then we'll come back into Hebrews chapter 10 uh, following that. But this book, the book of Hebrews, was a letter that was written to Jewish Christians back in the first century. The Jewish Christians were turning away from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and they were turning to Jesus. They were putting faith in this new covenant. But after they did that, things didn't work out well for them. Many of them, as we're gonna find in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, many of them were being persecuted. They were being literally cut in half. They were being put into the Roman Colosseums to be mauled to death by lions while the Roman citizens sat and cheered. Okay, so you could say that they were uh, a little bit concerned, okay? Many of them were having property seized. They were being stolen from. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, we watched the prosperity gospel on TV that if I just name it, claim it, that I would be able to be free. And they had this sense that when they accepted Christ that everything would just go the way they expected. Didn't work. And so the writer <clears throat> is writing to them and saying, look, <clears throat> excuse me. He's saying, Jesus and this new covenant is so far superior to the old covenant. Don't be fooled that it doesn't look like it in your life right now. Don't be misled. Don't turn away from it. Don't go back to what you were doing before just because then you're going to be accepted and then things are going to go better for you. Because it looks like on the outside, if we go back to Judaism, we're not going to be as persecuted. I mean, you, they weren't being persecuted for being Jews. They were being persecuted for being Christians. And so they were tempted to turn their back on this new faith. And what he's doing is he's intricately going through the old covenant and all of its sacrifices and all that it meant. And he's showing them that God is, is pointing to Jesus through all of it. He's showing how this is the most uh, important moment of their lives, the most important decision. And he's trying to encourage them not to turn back on it. And so as we read through Hebrews chapter nine today, you're gonna see even more of it. We're gonna start in verse 11, even though last week we went through verse 14 because there's a bit of overlap here. I didn't feel like I could preach the whole chapter last week, but I didn't feel like I could stop at verse 10 either. And so we're gonna overlap a little bit of it. So verse 11. <clears throat> so Christ has now become the high priest. Remember, he's our high priest in the line of Melchizedek, not in the line of Aaron, over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven. Not the one Moses built, not the one Solomon built, <clears throat> but the one that's in heaven, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me, I really gotta clear my throat. <clears> throat> no, I'm good. 
I got water, I got cough drops, I just need Jesus. He entered that tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not a part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Don't miss that. He didn't do it as a human in his own strength and divinity as God. By the power of the spirit, he suffered. Don't think Jesus was able to endure the cross because he was God. He was able to endure the cross because of the spirit. You and I could face the exact same type of punishment and handle it the exact same way because we have the spirit. We can't sell this short. I thought that was more exciting than that, but anyway. Verse 15, that is why... He is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Now, when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Wool. You know what it says. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. In the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of the things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now... Once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all, once for all time, as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews chapter nine goes through this idea of the supremacy of the blood of Jesus Christ over bulls and goats. Blood 
is necessary for forgiveness. The wages of sin is death, okay? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death entered the world. The only sacrifice now is blood. That's why in the garden, an animal was killed to cover them with skins. Blood was shed in the garden. Blood has to be shed for sin. So in the old covenant, it was the blood of bulls and goats over and over and over and over. And all it did was cover up the people. It didn't cleanse them from their sin, it just covered them. So that when God looked at the people, he didn't have to judge them because he saw the blood. But the blood of bulls and goats isn't powerful enough to cleanse once for all time. That's why every day, every time they sinned, they had to bring blood. And then once a year, for the sins they didn't know about, the high priest had to go in and make atonement for everybody. But that blood didn't last. And so it had to continuously be offered so that God would not have to judge. He would see the blood, and the blood would stop his judgment. You catching that? Now in the, old, in the new covenant, the blood of Christ once and for all cleanses us completely. It doesn't just cover us. It doesn't just make us, you know, so that God doesn't have to judge us. It completely cleanses us. It makes us brand new in the sight of God. And he only had to do it once. And so he's, he's going through intricate detail that we're not going to take time to go through. I have to resist the teacher in me. But he, Moses had to purify each of the articles in the temple. And I know that, or in the tabernacle, with blood. Now, putting blood on it didn't change the nature of the furniture. It was still the same nature. But the blood allowed God to be in covenant relationship with that tabernacle, even though it was made with human hands, sinful hands, because of the blood. Now, whether or not Jesus literally went into heaven and sprinkled his blood on the temple, I'm, I don't know, and I'm not going to tell you. Okay? Some people think he did. Some people think he didn't. Whether Jesus ascended into hell and actually got the keys from Satan or not, I don't know. What did he do while he was in the grave? There's so many opinions and so much scholars you could read forever on it. Here's what we do know. The blood of Jesus Christ, when he said it is accomplished, he did not need to physically go into hell or physically go into heaven. The moment that he shed his blood and said it is accomplished, the moment he died for us, all of that could have just taken place because the temple, the, tab, the temple the curtain was torn in two the moment he said it is accomplished. He didn't head over there to tear it himself. It was torn from top to bottom. So the moment he shed his blood, the keys are already taken. Okay, the blood is already spilt in heaven. Everything is purified. And so it, that part, is, is, it's just a no-brainer. What we need to get out of Hebrews chapter nine is that the work of Christ is a completed work. It's final, it's eternal, it deals with our sin, it releases captives, it purifies everything. It's that powerful. That's a great place to say amen. <clears throat> what we're gonna look at is the last two verses. Because we're not Jews, so the rest of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us unless we really study it out. We don't got that kind of time. And so we're going to look at two verses, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, the point of it. <clears throat> Everyone is destined to die once. Once. It's inescapable. No matter what race you are, no matter what gender you are, no matter what class you are, rich or poor, male or female, no matter what religion you are, you cannot escape the death one time. Every single person 
is destined to die once because the wages of sin is death. After that comes the judgment, the decision, the verdict, if you will. All of us face this. In heaven, there is what is called a great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20 talks about it. And those whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life by putting faith in Jesus, meaning what, what Jesus did, he did on my behalf, I accept that, I give my life to him as a result of that, and I receive his sacrifice for me. That's salvation. When we do that, our names get written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life, and we are saved from the second death. Revelation goes on to talk about those who stand before the great white throne who are not found in the Lamb's book of life get cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. This is the second death. We're not destined to die twice. Because of what Jesus did, now we're only destined to die once. But if we do not put faith in what Jesus did for us, even though God is no longer counting our sins against us, true statement, even though God is full of mercy and abounding in love, true statement, even though we know that God is just wanting everyone to be saved, true statement, some will still face a second death for failing to put faith in Jesus. So we don't want to be like that. We want to be the, those that are described as eagerly waiting for his second coming. Eagerly waiting. Now here's the thing. I don't think anything is in scripture frivolously. I don't think the writers embellished on truth. I know that as preachers, we can embellish. Not purposefully, but we can. <clears throat> I don't believe the scripture embellishes. So Obviously, there's a difference between just waiting and eagerly waiting. Don't you think? Or he would have just said waiting. Are we eagerly waiting for him to bring salvation to us? Notice it doesn't say we're waiting for salvation. What are we waiting for? Him. Him. He brings salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, we could sit here today and think about all the glories of heaven. We could sing about it. I've got a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where I'll never grow old. Hallelujah. I mean, I'm not going to get old. I'm going to cast off this body. I'm not going to creak when I get out of bed. I'm going to be able to run forever and not get tired. It's going to be awesome. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more bills, no more taxes, all of it gone. I mean, who doesn't want to eagerly wait for that, right? But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say we're eagerly waiting for our home in heaven. What are we eagerly waiting for? Him. Him. The Bible often refers to us as the bride of Christ. Eagerly waiting for our bridegroom. Now, men, if you are marrying a bride that is eagerly waiting for the, the wedding more than she's eagerly waiting for a life with you, reconsider. I mean, some ladies, it's all about the day. I've watched 
And we get so stressed out about the day and we prepare for the day, but we don't prepare for our life together. I mean, we spend inordinate amount of time preparing every detail of the wedding, but we don't take very much time making sure we're gonna stay together. And that's a problem. A good couple will prepare for both. Now, also, if you're gonna get married to someone who really could care less about the day and just, you know, let's just whatever, maybe we wanna reconsider that one too. She should be a little excited. No, I don't care if you get married at the justice of the peace. I don't care if you get married in an elaborate, wonderful wedding or just a simple one. But if you're not eagerly waiting for the moment when, that, when you come together as husband and wife before God, well then, why not? I mean, you should be eagerly awaiting the day, but it should be balanced. We should be eagerly awaiting our lives together. Not many brides, when they get engaged, have a countdown calendar on their wall, and then they just watch the pages turn. I mean, there's stuff to do. There's announcements to send out, there's invitations, there's bubbles to put little ribbons on, there's uh, little service things that need to go through, there's tool to buy, there's lights, there's candles, there's pre-lit stuff, are we gonna have sand, are we gonna have a, a unity candle? What are we gonna do? There's so many options, there's so many things, there's so many details. And so, husbands, we're, we're putting stamps on things. We're, we're, yes, dear, whatever you want me to do, dear. What do you think about this? I don't know. And we really don't know. Don't put pressure on us to choose because we really, we really don't know. And we really, it, we might not have an opinion. But if you have an opinion, you do what you want and we'll come along with it. So, but there's all of this stuff they do. Have you seen it? Have you been a part of it? Big checklist. But the bride of Christ I mean, you know what, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting my home in heaven. I mean, husbands, if you overhear your wife saying, man, I he's got this really nice car and I can't wait till we're married because then it's part mine. <laughs> Is that a problem? I mean, she's eagerly awaiting your stuff. <laughs> she's eagerly awaiting the benefits that marriage will provide, but not you. Well, but, but you're going to have a companion. You're going to have someone you can talk to every night. Well, yeah. You're going to have someone that you can share experiences with. It's going to be there to help you. <laughs> have you seen his car? <laughs> but this is oftentimes how the bride of Christ treats our Lord. We're eagerly awaiting our home in heaven, which we should. Absolutely we should. It is the reward for the things done in the body. And he knows this. He, we have a high priest who can sympathize with us because he's been tempted and tested in every way just like you and I are. The only reason he could overcome was because he had the spirit empowering him. But some of us as Christians think we're gonna magically, when, when the rapture takes place or when we die, that our soul, our mind, our, body, our will, our emotions, this soul, a part of us, is just gonna magically be transformed when we go into heaven. But that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches when we put faith in Christ, instantly our spirit is made alive. Our flesh has no hope, okay? This flesh is destined to die. Even if you are alive at the time of the rapture, your flesh gets cast off, it dies instantly, gone. Because you have to put on a new body. So the flesh is the only thing unredeemable. Our soul 
may also be redeemed, should also be redeemed right now. You and I should be working out our salvation that we've experienced in our spirit, in our mind, in our emotions, and in our will right now. That is the preparation for his coming. I am eagerly awaiting him, and I want to prepare myself to face him. I know that I'm not saved by it, but I want to present it to him. Does that make sense? I hope so. I skipped over the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have to skip that. 1 Peter chapter 1. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We want our faith to be presented as glorious, as praiseworthy, as honorable when Jesus Christ is revealed, when he comes back to the earth. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Not the salvation of your spirit, the salvation of our souls. And Peter goes on to talk about those trials that we're facing are helping save our souls. That's like a light bulb. Ding! Meaning every difficulty you and I face is to work out our salvation, to take what Jesus has already done on the inside of us and make it a reality in our mind, in our will, in our emotions, in our speech, so that other people can see it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. Let God transform you into a new person by salvation, by believing in Jesus. Well, that's not what it says. By changing the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will. You'll develop maturity and character to know the difference between God's will and my will, between God's will and what the enemy's trying to get me to do. I'm gonna become, how, how, how am I gonna be able to do that? Because I, I said the sinner's prayer? No, that saves our spirit, that makes us alive instantly. But now that we've been alive, made alive instantly, there's something we've got to do. We've gotta allow that salvation to seep into every part of our soul. Mind, will, and emotion. Revelation chapter 19. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Jesus. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride, us, has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. The, the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Please remember Salvation is by faith alone, but when we receive the salvation truly, we start processing that out of us to take over. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this story about 10 virgins, 10 believers, 10 Christians who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. Five of them are wives and five of them are foolish. 
Five that are wise bring extra oil along with their lamps, and the bridegroom is a long time coming. When he does come, when the cry rings out that the bridegroom is here, who are the five that are eagerly waiting for him? The ones that are wise that have brought extra oil. Because the five that were foolish that did not bring extra oil had to run to town to buy some, and when they came back, the door was closed, and they couldn't come in. Jesus clearly teaches us the wise man is the one who hears his words and put it in, puts it into practice. But the foolish one hears his words and doesn't put it into practice. And so when a difficulty comes, the, 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 the flood rises, the one who was foolish that built on the sand, their house crashes because they didn't put into practice what Jesus said. They didn't read the word and put it into practice. They weren't eagerly awaiting him, but they sure were looking forward to their home in heaven. These are telling words that are written to a church that is being persecuted, reminding them, hey, this is gonna be revealed. You just keep eagerly awaiting him. He's your reward. You might be eaten by a lion in a coliseum, but he is your reward. Him, and he's with you. You're not getting eaten by a lion because you've been unfaithful. Ask Daniel, well, wait. Daniel didn't get eaten by a lion. Don't ask him. But that's what we think. I mean, Daniel didn't get eaten. He was righteous. So if I get eaten, I must be sinful. No. You don't know how the mind of God works. And the only way we can is if we abide with him. We eagerly await him. So how do we eagerly await him? How do you and I begin to develop a taste for heaven? Here's what I wonder. How many Christians are going to be bored in heaven? As far as we know, there's no Netflix in heaven. As far as we know, there's no smartphones in heaven. As far as we know, there's no shopping in heaven. As far as we know, there's no hunting and fishing in heaven. As far as we know, all of the things in life that we enjoy aren't there. And I'm not trying to be a fun squatch today. I love a um, Netflix marathon just like the rest of you. You try to watch one episode, and before you know it, you got to watch 10 because they continue it. They do that on purpose, by the way, to suck you in. Just saying. It's a trap. But here's the thing. We ought to be developing a taste for where we're going and not just where we are. Because if we don't, we will be deceived. If all we do is participate in the things of this world, and Christian books don't replace this book. Sermons don't replace sitting at his feet so he can speak to me. All of these things have a place in our lives. I love to read. I, I read lots of books that people give me. I read books that I'm required to read. I read all, I, I love it. But that can't be my quiet time. This book and his presence has to be. We have to develop a taste for the culture of heaven. I'm gonna give you four ways that we do it and I'm gonna do it in the next 10 minutes. So write them down. <clears throat> we have to be in the word. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. I loved it this week when Christina said, don't say that God is silent while your Bible is closed. That's a great, 
great reminder to us that God speaks to us through his word. He wants us to get it in us. He wants us to read it. He wants us to study it. He wants us to meditate on it. Not just to have a quiet time and check it off, but every once in a while, instead of running to Netflix, he wants us to pick this book first. Instead of, you know, doing whatever else we want to do, he wants us to pick up this book and eat it. Some of us are waiting for, for us to ourselves, well, Pastor Tom, I'm waiting for God. I've been praying, God, give me an appetite for your word, and it hasn't come yet. So I really can't read it. It's just, I, it's so dry. Do you know how you develop an appetite for the word? Reading the word. Holy Spirit, help me as I read this to understand it. Help it to come to life to me. And I'm gonna discipline myself because you are the spirit of self-control and you are in me. So I can discipline myself to read the book even when, or the books, even when I don't feel like it. And as we do that, as we discipline ourselves, we develop a taste for it. Okay, the second one, prayer. We talked last week about this access to God that has been freely open to us to cultivate a relationship with him. Hebrews 4, coming boldly before his throne to receive mercy and to receive grace. What's mercy? It's the blood of Jesus to cleanse our conscience. It's the blood of Jesus to come on us to say, you're no longer condemned, you're no longer guilty, you are not who you think you are, you are not who other people say you are, you get my mercy because you've come before my throne today, I'm gonna give it to you, you're gonna receive it, you're gonna experience. Now, it's already being offered to you, but most of us won't experience it because we don't go get it. And all it takes to go get it is to say, God, I can't, I'm feeling so condemned and guilty today. That person, everything they just said about me is so true. And God, I need mercy right now. And guess what? You, it comes. You don't have to come to this room. You don't have to go to a, a special place. You just need to come to him. You get grace. You get power to live this out. <clears throat> Jesus taught us. In John chapter 15, verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. He also tells us in this same chapter that apart from him, we can do nothing. And some of us still try. We still try. God, I know I need to witness to this person, so I'm gonna just, um, come on, come on. If you are having a hard time witnessing, start abiding in Jesus more. Start carving out times of your schedule where you just sit and say, Jesus, you came to seek and save the lost. That's your heart. Uh, I need to spend some time with you because I, I need to start acting like you. Did you ever notice we mimic who we spend time with? Go through my preaching over the years and you'll be able to tell what preacher I was listening to in that season of my life because I mimic them. I say what they say. I mean, for the last several months, I've been like Robert Morris up here. Now I'm starting to act a little bit more like John Bevere again. Hello? <laughs> but we, we imitate who we spend time with. And we wonder why we can't imitate Jesus because all we do is watch Netflix. Because all we do is read books by uh, Andy Stanley. And we read books by all these other people. And why don't I imitate Jesus? Because we're not spending time with Jesus. We gotta spend time with Jesus. These two have to be hallmarks or the other two are gonna be out of balance. 
Number three, we need to start feeding his sheep. Jesus asked Simon, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. You know, we love, Jesus, I love you. If you love me, feed my sheep. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you love me, do what I say. But Jesus, you know I love you, then do what I say. Jesus, I can't do what you say because of my flesh. Then spend some time with me. And then your soul is gonna start changing. And then you're gonna go out and do this. It's about reaching the lost. It's not just about reaching the lost. It's about serving the body of Christ. Doing good, not just to everyone, but especially those in the household of faith. It's using whatever gift God has given us to serve others, to faithfully administer God's grace. In other words, God has given you grace. He's given you a gift to serve the body. The only way you can be faithful with that grace is if you use it to serve others. (coughs) Feed my sheep. The best litmus test of our relationship with Christ is our human relationships. The best test of the strength of our relationship with God is our human relationships. Okay? And not the ones that we're doing okay with. The ones that are weak. How are we at loving our enemies? How are we at loving our wives when they're grouchy? How are we, you know, men, sometimes loving your wife might mean telling her, hey, your grouchiness made you yell at that person and you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Ain't no man in the place wants to do that. But sometimes we need to. And wives, submitting to your husband doesn't just mean sitting there quietly. If your husband's being a jerk, you need to kindly tell him that. Stop being a jerk to people. That's not who you are. You're a child of God. That's not even a part of your nature anymore. Why are you doing that? There's a whole lot difference in how I said that than how we sometimes say it, don't we? Stop acting like your mother. Are you there? Because here's the thing. It's their behavior we're talking about, not who they are. Because who they are is a son and daughter of God. Who I am doesn't change when I act a certain way. Who I am is settled at the cross. But because of who I am, how I act needs to change. And that's why we can confront each other because we're only talking about behavior now. We're not talking about character. Oh, that changes everything. All right, last one. Obedience and surrender. Jesus said it clearly. If you love me, obey my commandments. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I do? say (coughs) maybe somebody told you once that all salvation was was step forward say this prayer repeat after me and you're good but salvation was a dying to ourselves it was a recognition that i was very sinful and i was going my own direction jesus paid that penalty and to accept what he did i have to die my dreams have to die My will has to die. My thoughts have to die. My desires, even sometimes my desires that 
seem good and seem Christian, but aren't what he's telling me to do? Because we can put a good Christian label on something and disobey the Lord looking good. But if it's not what he told us to do, don't do it. Because I'm no longer mine. I've been bought with a price. <clears throat> See, the Bible warns us that if we don't develop a taste for heaven, we're going to be deceived. When you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart, be obedient. Because if we don't obey, we already covered this in Hebrews, if we don't obey, sin is so deceitful, it will harden our hearts against God. We used to teach that if you sin and Jesus came back, you wouldn't be ready, so you better repent right now of everything you did wrong, because God is in heaven watching, and he is gonna come and get you. That's not it at all. But if we allow sin to remain unchecked in our lives, it is deceitful and it will harden our hearts and it will turn us away from the living God. You cannot sow to the flesh and reap life. It will wear you down. And that's why we're warned. In Luke chapter 21, be careful not to spend your time, the majority of your time, feasting, drinking, Worrying about worldly things. If you do, that day might come on you suddenly like a trap on all the people on the earth. So be ready all the time. Be eagerly waiting. Pray that you'll be strong enough to escape these things that will happen and you'll be able to stand before the Son of Man. See, this generation, you have been, told, sought, you've been, you have been sold a bill of goods that isn't true. We are now addicted to this device. We can't stop staring at it. We can't stop touching it. And it's not bad. There's good games you can play on here. There's good things you can listen to on here. But this is, if this verse was written today, I can't imagine Jesus wouldn't say, be careful not to spend your time feasting, drinking, and looking at your cell phone. Looking at your iPad. Watching television. Not that those things are bad. Not that we can't do those things. But those things will not turn your character toward God. It's time to be in the word. It's time to be in prayer. It's time to start carving out time to do these things. I leave you with this quote. This is a quote by Dick Brogdon. If you don't know who Dick Brogdon is, you will in the next few weeks. But he writes these words. The first chapter of this journal is foundational to the whole live dead concept. We'll talk about that. The chapter is on abiding in Christ, which essentially means we spend extravagant time with Jesus on a daily basis. From that abiding time will come the strength and direction to fulfill the live dead challenge. As you read the first chapter, you may be surprised to find that I call you to give Jesus a tithe of your day for one month. That means two and a half hours a day. And every single mom in the room is like, huh, I would gladly give Jesus two and a half hours of my day. He writes to you, I don't have that quote in here, but he writes to you single moms too, that he's not talking about one chunk of time. But he's saying, you know what? Start falling in love with Jesus. For all of us, that seems like an impossible challenge. It is impossible. It is not impossible, excuse me. It is difficult to be sure, but who said dying is easy? It can be done 
if you want it badly enough. I don't usually invest two and a half hours every day. Most days it's closer to an hour and a half or two hours. <laughs> the point, listen, the point is not legalism for legalism spoils everything. The point is valuing Jesus so highly that we give him extravagant daily time and we long to be with him as much as we can. He is going to bring salvation from the second death to those who are eagerly waiting for him. For him. Not what he's bringing. For him. How do we know whether we're eagerly waiting for him? He's here. He's here right now. He's here in our worship service. He's with you every day when your Bible is sitting right there. How are we eagerly waiting for him right now? My prayer is that we eagerly, eagerly await him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it teaches us what is right. I thank you that it shows us who you are, your character, your nature, the great lengths that you went to to win us back. God, I also thank you that it doesn't sugarcoat things, that it talks about the battle with our flesh and the need for us to be diligent to crucify that flesh to be diligent to take the spirit that we have been given, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and develop the disciplines of faith that are gonna lead to the salvation of our souls. To allow you to change the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we talk. And so Holy Spirit today, show us the areas of our lives that need to change. Show us where we need to begin developing an appetite for the culture of heaven. Show us the things that maybe need to start getting cut off because we don't want to run the risk of being deceived. We don't want to run the risk of that day closing on us like a trap. We want our hearts to be pure to be soft, to be eagerly awaiting you, you, you. See, the thing is, church, he is the best thing for us. And I know that it appears on the outset like a sermon like this is very restrictive that Pastor Tom wants to be a fun squatch. But here's the truth. I have never met someone who has learned to abide in Jesus more and more who has told me they regret it. Stop doing it. Because when you start to taste and see that the Lord is good, even in hard times, you understand the Lord is good. 
problem is when the hard time comes, we haven't been developing our relationship with him enough that we react and think God is taking from us, that God is angry with us because we don't know who he is. We don't know that he loves us. I mean, really know it. We've got to start developing a taste for heaven through the word, through prayer, through feeding his sheep, through discipline, through obedience, laying our lives down. That's the call of this message today. As we close in prayer, I want to pray for those of you that the Holy Spirit is speaking to right now specifically. And if you're here and you say, you know what, Pastor Tom, the Holy Spirit is going off like an alarm on the inside of me. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to start developing more of a taste for the things of the kingdom than the things of this world. The things of this world aren't necessarily evil in our eyes, but they will turn our hearts away from God if we don't spend time with him. And so if, if he's going off on the inside of you like that, I don't know what the area would be. Maybe it's your time in the word. Maybe it's your time in prayer. Maybe it's feeding God's sheep. Maybe it's just being obedient. You're not doing something that he's asked you to do. Maybe it has to do with loving your enemies. Maybe it has to do with blessing those that curse you. And you would have the courage right now to say, it's time for me to, to change my diet. It's time for me to make some changes. And so I wanna come before the throne and I wanna receive mercy and I wanna receive grace today to do that. Would you just stand to your feet and say, that's me? I need to change my diet. The Holy Spirit's speaking to me and I need mercy and I need grace today. And so, Father, in response to your word, we come before your throne and we come only because of the blood that Jesus shed for us. We come to receive mercy because, God, we recognize that we eat way too much junk food. We are developing, at times, more of a taste for this world than we are for the world we're headed to. And things need to change. But God, we need your mercy today because guilt and condemnation and legalism would just literally come and quench everything your spirit wants to do in this moment. And so we need to know your love. We need to know our salvation comes from Christ. We need to know that we're your sons and your daughters. And so shower this room with mercy right now. And Holy Spirit, we also need your grace. We need your power. We know that you live in us and we know that everything we need for life and godliness is there. Help us to draw from it. Help us to discipline our lives in a way that we start developing a taste for what is good. In the same way that with a physical diet, it's difficult to change our tastes. God, we understand this is going to take effort on our part, but that effort is going to be empowered by you. And so teach us first and foremost to abide in you. 
We need your help. Holy Spirit, give clear instruction right now to every person that's standing in this room that we would know what change you're asking us to take. That one step you're calling us to right now. In fact, I want to caution you in this moment. Please do not make a list of everything you need to change. Pick one thing. Holy Spirit, direct that one step. And I promise you, when you start taking that step, he'll show you the next one. This isn't about putting a bunch of chains on ourselves today. This is about one step of obedience at a time, at a time. And so that first step. Now, Lord, I pray you would bless them, that you would keep them, that you would cause your face to shine on them, that you would be gracious to them, and that you would give them peace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, I want to keep this room uh, as a place of prayer. If you haven't been prayed for and you want to pray, uh, please come. Our prayer team will be here for a few more moments. We'd love to pray with you. If you need to spend some time in prayer, please do that. When you're ready to be dismissed, just do it quietly and let this remain a place of prayer for those that want to remain. God bless you as you go.